Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Well, hello there. This is episode 31 of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. I'm your host, Sarah McKenzie. So happy to be with you here today. I just had the most delightful conversation with our guest, and I cannot wait to share it with you. I think you're going to love her. Before we get to the interview, I did want to mention... If you haven't left a rating or review for the Read Aloud Revival in iTunes, would you do that for us? It makes a huge difference in how many people find out about the podcast and get the tools and resources they need to build their family culture around books. All you need to do is go to iTunes, search for Read Aloud Revival. You can rate the podcast with stars. You could leave a one sentence review and that's even better. And it just goes a long way toward how many people find our podcast in iTunes and get to start listening. So we really appreciate everybody who takes just a couple minutes to do that. Today's guest loves talking children's literature. She's so passionate about children's books, in fact, that she's been republishing classic and historical children's literature for the last 20 years through her company, Beautiful Feet Books. Books like the Adialaire biographies, the world books of Genevieve Foster, Albert Marin's biographies, and more. She also designs guides for teaching elementary and secondary students history using award-winning classic and historic literature. And those guides help parents and teachers incorporate classic living books easily throughout their curriculum. She studied children's literature at Simmons College and in 2006 earned a master's degree in children's literature at the Center for the Study of Children's Literature in Boston. She speaks around the country is a columnist for the Old Schoolhouse magazine and is someone I had the immense pleasure of meeting earlier this year. So I'm so happy to welcome to the show, Rhea Berg. Rhea, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's just lovely to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, can we start by having you tell us just a little bit about your family and your work? Absolutely. Let's see. Where should I begin? We are the very delighted parents of six children. We have children ages 15 to 35. Oh, wow. Okay. That's quite the spread. Yeah. Big <laughs> high spread. We, we have four biological children. Our oldest is 35. And when our very youngest biological was 15, we, had, we went to Ukraine and we adopted two little girls. So we are still in the parenting business. And in fact, it's very funny because for the first time in 35 years, my husband and I are empty nesters for six full weeks. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Our youngest daughter is a ballerina. And so every summer she goes and does a summer intensive somewhere. So this year she's in, she's with Ballet West in Salt Lake City, Utah for six weeks. And 
staying at the university and sleeping in the dorms and having just an amazing experience there. So it's a kind of a wonderful thing to have about six weeks of experiencing what empty nesters experience. Right, yeah. Who haven't been parenting for quite as long as we have. So (laughs) it's been really delightful for my husband and I to reconnect in that way. Very cool. Oh, that's so cool. So back in the 80s, I started uh, Beautiful Feet Books because I was just really falling in love with children's literature. And I thought, boy, if I love these books this much, I just know lots of other parents are going to too. And that was sort of the genesis of it. And I, from that point, I really started trying to put together curriculum so that parents and teachers could teach history using literature rather than textbooks. So that was just, it was just a very small seed of an idea at the very beginning. But then, you know, it grew and grew to this tree where now we publish all kinds of children's books and we brought back in the print, as you mentioned in the introduction, a lot of wonderful classic literature for children. And And that's sort of one of the missions that I really love being part of is just being able to locate these books that have gone out of print and are just absolute treasures and and bring them back into print. Well, it's such a gift for all of us, I think, because we find out about some beautiful, wonderful, enriching book and then find out it's out of print and then it's either cost prohibitive or just impossible to find them. So, yes. And that's really what happened with our very first, we call it our very first book baby because it was Leave the Lucky by Ingrid and Edgar Prindolaire. And I had put together just a very simplistic guide for teaching American history using uh, the Dolaire books, and in addition to a number of other classes, classics like The Courage of Sarah Noble and The Matchlock Gun, other Caldecott and Newbury award-winning books. And We Feel Lucky was so, so difficult to get that People were having to pay seventy-five to hundred dollars to buy an old copy oh, of it. Oh goodness! Yeah. So we really drove we drove this market price up, and of course, this was before the days of internet. So you had to call around to used bookstores and put in a request to see if they could find it for <laughs> yeah. you. Kind of wrap my mind around how much work that would be. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes. So that was what first sort of initiated the idea of wow, we should see if we could publish this book. And of course, we knew nothing. We were total neophytes to the whole publishing industry. But we actually met with Miss Ingrid and Edgar Perrin had two sons, Nils and Ula. And Nils was at the time working for the Clinton administration, and I had been invited to speak in Maryland. So we decided to contact him and see, and see if he would meet with us about publishing his, his parents' book, We Feel Lucky. And so... It was very fun. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but there's a beautiful picture of Leif Erickson on the cover of it. Yes, he's about we have it. Results. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> One of yours. And actually, he's yes. got this wild chunk of white hair and these bushy white and these, you know, eyebrows and these big, gorgeous blue eyes. And when we knocked on Nils Dolaire's door, his little boy, who was 10 years old, opened the door. And it was like we were looking into the face oh of Leif Erickson. It was just so fun, Sarah, because it was just like we knew we were in the right place. And, and of course, Nils and his brother, Ula, were the models for their parents. Oh, right. For many of their books. Right, right. And so, and Ingrid Delaware was originally, you know, well, she was Norwegian. So she had that connection with the whole, you know, Leif Erikson story. So it was just, that was our very first book baby. And we learned a lot in bringing Leif back you know, back to life for a new generation. And it was just a, an amazing journey. And from that point on, 
we ended up publishing all the Dolores biographies and, of course, then many other books. But that was really how the whole publishing thing came about. So Very cool. Okay, so where did your theory. own passion for your own passion for children's literature, where did that come from? Is that something you've always had, you know, sort of like a little flame that's always been burning or did it, is there something in particular that ignited it? Well, you know, I think the flame was really there as a child because I remember being so just enchanted. My parents had a a leather-bound book of like old English poetry or something. And I remember just going to bed with that as a very young child. I probably didn't understand most of what was in there, but I just remember going to bed with a flashlight and, and just feeling like through the pages of that book, like I entered this completely foreign country, you know, that was just sort of enchanted and mysterious and wonderful. And so that that was there, but it was never fed as a child. I wasn't, you know, one of those fortunate ones that, you know, was taken to the library every week and had very literate parents that were constantly reading. And so it didn't really come to sort of full flame until I became a mother myself. And then, and actually, even before I had children, I read For the Children's Sake by Susan Schaefer Macaulay. Are you familiar with that one, Sarah? Yes, that's an, I was just telling somebody, my absolute favorite book on education ever. And it's one that I reread yeah. every single summer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're so, you're so wise because it's, to me, it's sort of established an entirely new paradigm for what it means to educate our children. And it's where we get so many of those notions of, you know, the sort of wholehearted child and and living books and nurturing the child's heart and spirit in the process of education. Because, you know, if we don't, if we don't nurture the child's heart and we're just filling their mind with knowledge, then we can essentially create monsters. We really can't. (laughs) And so I think, you know, making sure that that notion of, you know, my most important calling is really to nurture the heart and soul of this child. And so I think literature is such an incredibly important tool in our toolkit as parents to make sure that we're training the hearts and the minds of our children while we're educating them intellectually so that there's, you know, just the strength of that. We don't want to create, you know, just intellectual geniuses that, you know, don't have the humanity and the compassion and the empathy that I think we learned so well through the very best books. So the passion was there or the flame was there, but then it was really ignited when I started having children and then I just wanted to find the best books for them. And so that was right about the time that books Children Love came out by Elizabeth Wilson. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a fan of favorite I, mine. <laughs> Yes. And that book was like my Bible. I mean, I took that to the library every week to get books for my children. And of course, I would always grab some that weren't in her book and always found out that 90% of those were not worthy of our time or our energy or Mm -hmm. our focus. And so that made me sort of start developing my own list in addition to what Elizabeth Wilson recommended in her book. And so... That was kind of how I started putting together, oh, well, this would be a great book for early American history, and this would be a wonderful book for learning California history. And and so eventually, over the years, those things just started, you know, accumulating, and, and some friends encouraged me, you just need to write it all down, you need to write city guides. And you're like, oh, no, you guys can do this, it's easy, you know, I'll just pull you out. <laughs> so anyway, but eventually, I succumbed to the peer pressure, and I 
I just started, we bought our very first computer and I, I sat down and started learning what a word processor was and turning together these very simplistic and, you know, in my very limited knowledge guides. But they became very popular very quickly and, and that sort of set us on our, our mission to just make those available. But so, it really struck a chord at a, a perfect time in kind of homeschooling history. Yeah, I think so. Especially with, I mean, I think... I know so many homeschooling families who really want to teach through literature because there seems to be so many benefits to teaching through literature. Like you were just talking about nourishing the child's heart. And it reminds me, I don't know the Charlotte Mason quote off the top of my head, but I think she has a quote. There's something in one of her books where she says it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how much the child knows, or we, we shouldn't ask the question, how much does the child know? We should ask the question, how much does he care? I mean, culturally, when we started homeschooling back in the 80s, the emphasis really was on character building. And I think there's been a shift and the pendulum has swung, I think, to our demise in a way, to this notion of the intellectual development of the child and academic excellence. And mind you, I'm as much for academic excellence as anyone. But I think when academic excellence leaves this whole notion of character and childhood development, or child development in terms of teaching children empathy and compassion behind. I think that's where we get this this potential for education. Because I mean, you know, some of your you know most notorious white collar you know crime is committed by highly educated people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so education really can't be the goal. I think if we keep our goal, you know, the character development of the child. I think the education will come along with it. And I mean, I have four adult children now, so I've, I've been, you know, I, I've seen the fruit of our labors. And I have to say, I am just always so touched and moved by how compassionate my children are, my adult children, in terms of their ability to care for others and to care for the needy and to care for the oppressed and put themselves out there for, you know, people that just need that, that hand of compassion and empathy. And so I think that literature is just such an important component in that. And honestly, I have to say for myself, I was not raised in a Christian home. And I think, you know, when I look at the lives of people who have had a very rich literature-based education, where literature has been such a major component of their lives and their focus and their worldview, those people are the people that I love to be with. Those are the people that that are authentic. They're real. They're still laying down their lives for other people. Even as they age, their focus is not on themselves. It's on how can I still use whatever talents and faculties and gifts that I have to minister to a broken world. And those are the people that I want to pattern my life after. And of course, with all of the you know the media blitz on Go to the Watchmen, I think it just I think it explores that whole notion so much more clearly. We're just putting out another study guide for high school for contemporary American and world history. So I've just finished writing study notes again for To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm, Yes. And when you look at the character of Scout, and of course the character of Scout is really the character of Harper Lee, and when you look at just how incredibly rich her childhood was in literature and how she was read aloud to from the time, you know, she could remember I mean, this is, of course, the fictional character of Scout, but the fictional character of Scout is Harper Lee. There's no question. 
and the rich literary background of her life enabled her to see racism for what it truly was. Even though she was couched and raised and nurtured in this cultural environment of the South, where racism was just such a part of who you were and how you viewed the world, because her father was constantly pouring into her such a rich literary world, she was able to break out of that and see racism, racism for what it truly was. And that's why the character of Scott is so endearing, because she speaks to us as a child, you know, the wisdom of a child. And so I think that, you know, it, it's that same notion of what this Haim Gano said and what you said about not how much they know, it's how much they care. That That's, that's our goal. Well, then it puts education in the service of people rather than people making education this sort of almost like a false god or an idol. You know, we're trying to give our children this rigorous education, but when we ask why, well, it's an education is always to serve people and help them love each other better. Then we get a more clear picture of what that education should be about. And I think that speaks right to what you're talking about here. Yes, that is such an important point, Sarah. And I think that when we realize the power that literature provides for us, because even for myself as a homeschool mom, I mean, homeschool will put you in the fiery furnace quicker than anything <laughs> in terms of your own character yes, and the your refining flaws. fire for sure. <laughs> yes. And I think that literature, because like I said, I was not raised in a Christian home, so I didn't have a lot of those character qualities that I think are so essential if you're going to be a homeschool parent. I mean, literature was that, it was that constant reminder to me of what my goal was, not only for my children, but for myself. It's like, I've got to be working on that whole character component in my life simultaneously with my children. And that's why I think literature can call us into account quicker than anything. Because if we're reading the very best books, we're getting those character lessons ourselves all the time. That's right. And that really helps to keep us on a straight and narrow because I think it's so... Especially, I mean, homeschool moms, I don't think there's another, you know, I don't think there's another demographic on the planet that is as busy (laughs) and whose time is so incredibly precious. Because, I mean, you're not only a wife, you're not only a mother, but you're a full-time educator, too. It's just like the constraints on your time and your temperament and everything you are is so extreme. Like, you are really at such a... I mean, you are just the demands of so many people are focused on you. And so I think that's where we have to realize that we've got to be constantly nurturing our spirits if we want this thing to be successful. I mean, you know, we can send kids off to Harvard and we can send kids off to, you know, elite colleges and all. But if we really miss about in the character department, that is going to become a curse to us. It's not going to be a blessing. There's a really sweet story of a family that they've kind of followed beautiful feet books from the beginning. and. And then, you know, different educational modes and, and fashions have come and gone. And at the time that they were homeschooling their children, you know, a new paradigm came along where it was just academically super rigorous. And there was an incredible emphasis on memorization. And this is what you need to do if you want your children to get into the best schools and all this stuff. And so her friends were constantly coming to her and saying, oh, so what are you doing for Greek and Latin? And what are you doing for, you know, rhetoric? And what are you doing for, and, you know, just any list of, you know, rigorous academics. 
And she says, oh, wow, we read good books. <laughs> and then someone else would come along and, and what are you doing for this? And what are you doing for that? And, oh, well, we read good books. <laughs> and so that was always her constant refrain for, you know, these, her, the peer pressure. So she kept on the road that she felt was the right one for her family, even though she was having to stand against a lot of peer pressure. And lo and behold, her son gets into West Point. All of her friends, their children were burnt out by the time they were done with high school. And a good majority of them didn't even want to go to college because they didn't like education anymore. Mm-hmm. They had lost their love of learning. Her son went to West Point, and it was tough there. I mean, it's, you know, it's a military academy, and it's military life, and it, it's a tough environment, especially for a fine, young Christian person. And so... You know, he would call up and sometimes be lamenting to his mom. You know, it's just, it's tough here, mom. Military life is really tough. And she'd go, well, I hope you're okay. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I read good books. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just like that skill that he learned and the way he learned about life. I mean, he, he achieved academic excellence, obviously. But he also had this incredible life skill that he took with him. And he knew that when he needed that place of peace and rest and for his soul to be nourished, that he could go to good books and find it there. So I love that story because that's a, a story that, you know, we got to see sort of walked out and, and realized. So, so That's please. so beautiful. And, you know, my friend, one of my very best friends, Misty Winkler, she was homeschooled and um, so was her husband. So they have this great second generation perspective on homeschooling that most of us don't mm. have, I think. And one of the right. things she says is that the most formative thing, the most important thing in her, both her education and her husband's, now from adulthood looking back, they can see that the thing that formed the most was their reading. What they Actually, their free reading, I think is what she says, what they read in their free mm-hmm. time. And so yeah. that really guides her homeschooling decisions now is knowing that as much content as you try and dump into your child's brain, the most formative thing is going to be the connections they make with the stories they read. So kind of seems... Yes. And that's the thing, because, you know, stories really speak to that, which is most universal to the human heart. And those are lessons that we, we just, we will constantly come back to as human beings. And it just reminds us of what's really important. And, and when we look at what's really important, it's our relationships with others. And of course, our relationships with others are the very reflection of our relationship with God. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Oh, that's beautiful. So. Like going back to that idea of choosing books, what criteria do you use when you're choosing books, either for Beautiful Feet to publish or books that you just used as with your children when you were reading? Are there any, what would you say to somebody who's trying to kind of get their feet underneath them when it comes to choosing really good books? Yeah. Well, have really good sources. So the very first thing I would recommend, of course, is, you know, just like you do, read for the children's sake and read it, you know, read it over and over again (laughs) by Susan Schaefer Macaulay. And then always go to the library armed with either books children love or honey for a child's heart. The criteria that we use at Beautiful Feet is literary beauty. So the book has to have beauty in terms of how the artist wrote it and their ability to speak to the human heart using the best words, the most concise language, and all of the incredible literary tropes and illusions and devices that make a book truly worthwhile. And I mean, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, if a child's book 
cannot be enjoyed by an adult, it's not a good child's book either. Right. And, you know, we sort of know that intuitively when we sit down with those wonderful classic children's books, you know, the, I mean, whether it's the fairy tales of, you know, the Grimm fairy tales or um, Anderson, we know that, I mean, we love reading those to our children because there's inherent beauty in the language. And then for us as, you know, publishers, we always look for incredibly beautiful illustrations, too, because... When we're when we first start presenting books to our children, we want their palette formed by beauty, and that you know what Matthew Arnold described as the best that's been thought, you know, the best thoughts of mankind, and that's what we want to form their palette with. Because if we form their palette that way, they will never, I believe, with all my heart, and I've seen this played out, they will never be entranced or enchanted by the tawdry and the banal and, you know, just the ugliness that, that's out there because their palate, that which satisfies their sort of spiritual emotional palate is, has been formed with beautiful words and beautiful pictures and noble thought. And that is just such an incredible safeguard for our children as they go out into the world and are presented with just a smorgasbord of all that is tawdry in this world and that notion of forming their palette. So when we publish books, we're always looking for visual and literary beauty, and that's what we focus on. And I think, you know, when you look at the history of children's publishing, so much of that which was published, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century through, you know, the latter half, that it was just a golden era of children's books. And there's just so many wonderful books that are now, you know, it's not that they've completely gone out of favor, but in the publishing world, unless a book sells something like 50,000 copies a year continually on the backlist, most publishers aren't interested in it. It's just not profitable to them. So there's all these little wonderful gems out there that, you know, small people like (laughs) my husband and I can come along and they sell a few thousand copies a year. And to us, that's, you know, just restoring a treasure and keeping part of our literary heritage alive in in these wonderful books. Well, I I completely can uh, understand the idea of forming a child or, you know, helping them cultivate a taste for good books. I think I've seen that in my oldest daughter, who's almost 14 now. And she has a pretty good discernment for good books. She'll ditch a book if it feels kind of twaddly. I almost don't have to do too much of the, you know, discouraging if she picks up something twaddly because I know she'll drop it by the first chapter and then she'll go pick up something else, you know, like Lucy Maud Montgomery or something. So she's, she's been, I think, formed by enough really good stories that it's starting to shape, you know, her kind of understanding of what, what's worth reading. So that's fun. I don't know if all my kids will have as much discernment, but it's been fun to watch with her. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so we're starting to see some of the fruit of that, and that's such a beautiful, exciting thing to see. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? 
<laughs> fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. Well, one of the things you recommend is starting starting history studies with American history, which is really interesting, especially considering right now there seems to be a trend in home education circles of people wanting to study history chronologically. So do you want to walk us yeah. through why you start with American history? Okay, well, first of all, from a very practical sense, the very best children's books are about American history. Yeah. <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't a lot of classic children's works about about ancient history. And so what I've noticed with, you know, a lot of this new generation with that sort of focus is that they've missed some of the very best children's books when their children are little and when they are most appropriate for those ages. And so that's, I mean, on a very practical, from a very practical perspective, that's the most important, I think, is that if you're not focusing on early American history when your children are little, you're going to miss just a wealth of beautiful books for your children. So, but really from a child development perspective, I think it's important to look at child development experts really believe that the human brain grows and is developed intellectually in um, gradually expanding, you know, concentric circles. So just as, you know, we first start nursing our infants, we are their whole world. And then eventually, you know, daddy starts to come into that world and then their siblings and, and their understanding of the world develops that way, you know, even as they emerge into early grammar school, they are still learning the world in these expanding concentric circles. And so, I mean, if anyone's kind of interested in this from just sort of a scientific perspective, I would recommend the works of Jean Piaget, the French philosopher. And really, he was the one that really studied how the child brain develops. And so our child, you know, emerges into this world of the nuclear family. And then that world is expanded by the, the you know, the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and the cousins. And then eventually the church community or their school community and, and then their larger community. And then their identity as the citizen of a nation. And so for us, from, you know, a simple, you know, childhood development perspective, it's just in keeping with what scientists understand about how the brain learns. And so I think also that because what we really want is our children to respond to these stories, you know, in a very vicarious way, we want them to relate to these characters that they're, you know, the, the Washingtons and the Lincolns and the Benjamin Franklins and, you know, the the forefathers of history of their country, once they come to know and love those figures and appreciate them and look up to them, then they're able to more realistically 
understand and relate to a larger world scene. So I think that, you know, I mean, this is in a hard and fast rule, but I think that it tends to work better for young children to learn about the history of their own country first. And then once they know and love their own country, then they can know and love the histories of other countries. And so that's kind of been how we felt like you can best develop this love of history. And it seems to have worked really well over the last three decades that we've been doing this. Yeah. Another one of the homeschool mom mentors that I really look up to is Laura Burquist at Mother of Divine Grace School. And this is something she recommends as well, to start with the nation, start with your child's own nation. And I think it's it's the same concept of the best children's literature. Really, the best children's American history literature is like the Dallaire books, like the ones that you publish. And those may not appeal to your middle schooler. So if you wait until their middle school yeah. before you get to that age, you kind of miss the window for that book to really have the same kind of impact on them. Yeah, and I think that's really true because, again, we want our children, especially when they're in those tender years, we want the books that speak most powerfully to them. Now, as far as ancient history, first of all, there isn't a single classic children's picture book that's ever won a single award that's ever been acknowledged to be of extraordinary literary beauty for a primary student. Wow, I did not realize that. Okay. No, they don't exist. now. One of the classics of ancient children's literature is the work of Padraic Colum, the children's Homer. Oh, yes. Okay. So Padraic, Padraic Colum was a Irish man of letters, a poet, and a total wordsmith. And he knew the value of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so he wanted to write a children's version of it. And so he did the children's Homer. And it's beautiful. The illustrations are beautiful. But that, you couldn't read that book to a primary child. That book is for an intermediate to junior high-level child. Okay. And, the, you know, just the concepts are too complex and, and all of that. So there really is nothing like that for a primary age student either. So you really forego this notion of really concentrating on literary beauty and gorgeous picture books if you want to teach chronologically, you really do forego that. And I think then you're just using sort of mediocre books. And remember, this is when your child is learning to love books. Yeah, right. You're using all mediocre literature and, you know, and you're not really teaching history. So it's a bit of a misnomer. You're teaching cultural studies because you really, there aren't any really great books on the history of Greece and the history of Rome for primary children. (laughs) So you're teaching You know, you're teaching pyramids and you're teaching mummies and you're teaching chariots. And so you're really not doing history either. You're doing cultural studies. So it's it's just a bit of a misnomer. And it's it's a a very good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a great point. (laughs) Well, and it's it's never been done in history. This notion of teaching chronologically is a brand new paradigm. And so I, you know, I mean, I think if people understood that, they wouldn't be so convinced immediately that, oh, this is the best, this makes total sense. Or this, this. So I think, you know, if you look at it historically, history has never been taught this way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I think Memoria Press, and we'll link this in the show notes, but they have this great post titled History is Not Chronological. And it's really, it kind of turns that whole idea. Well, I'm going to have to look at that. that yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. I'll send, I'll send you a link. It's pretty great. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, the way that many of us were taught history in school included like a lot of dates and memorization and 
that's also the way a lot of us teach our kids various subjects, not just history. But I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on memory work and memorizing dates and facts. Well, I think memorization is one of the extraordinary, you know, faculties of the human mind. I mean, it's it's really quite something what people can memorize. And oh my goodness, when you look at the histories of some of the great leaders and thinkers, you know, like Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill, their capacity and their ability to memorize was extraordinary. The difference between the educational culture right now and those great leaders who achieved amazing feats in history mm-hmm. was the content. None of those leaders ever memorized dates and facts, ever. Okay. But they would memorize, Winston Churchill would memorize whole chapters of classic literature. Right. And, okay. Um, and poetry that was, I mean, it's extraordinary. So we have this amazing faculty for memorization, and yet we're just putting meaningless dates and facts and times in our child's brain when they could be memorizing. And really, I mean, scripture, the power of memorizing scripture is so extraordinary. Those scriptures that you memorize as a child will stay with you your entire life. And sometimes they will mean the difference between life and death mm-hmm. in your emotional health and in some of the things that you have to face in your life. The power of memorizing poetry, I mean, it's extraordinary how poetry can speak to us. Poetry speaks to us in a way nothing else can. And I mean, that's one of the reasons memorizing scripture is so powerful, because much of it is poetry. Right, right. This is actually really um, affirming for me, because since we've had... Well, about two years ago, we had three babies in two years. We have a, a, we had a, a baby who was nine months old, and then we got pregnant with twins. <laughs> this is baby, baby, oh baby, God. and we had three oh older <laughs> yes, and we had three older kids uh, who were homeschooling. And so at the time, oh I had goodness. this sort of frightfully ambitious list of things I wanted my kids to memorize. But because God sent all these beautiful babies to us, our time was extremely <laughs> limited. And so what I ended up doing was paring down our memory work to just beautiful language because I thought, okay, we only have a certain amount of time. So the most important thing I want is, and I I would pare it down to mostly scripture and poetry and sometimes beautiful pieces, passages from literature. And um, we've kind of just kept on with that. And I've never really brought the facts back in. And now I'm thinking, I think we'll just keep on doing what we've been doing then. (laughs) Oh, that's so wonderful. Yes. Wasn't that a delightful diversion? Isn't that great? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We think the babies oh, and toddlers are getting in the way, but actually they're refining us, you know. And Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just wonderful. What a great story. Well, I just think about, especially for children, they have such a delightful sense of humor. What a wonderful time in their lives to teach them the crazy limericks of Edward Lear or, you know, memorizing the poetry of Shel Silverstein. I mean, how fun. What a great way to bring humor into your you know, into your daily routine and the levity of some of these amazing poets who bring humor, you know, and just, you know, and that was one of the things that was so life-saving for Lincoln, because Lincoln had that very melancholy disposition, and he was given to deep, dark depressions. And I mean, you look at his life, it was so tragic. I mean, his very first love, Anne Rutledge, you know, dies when they're teens, you know, and then 
Shortly after that, his only sibling dies in childbirth. You know, his mother died when he was nine or ten years old. So he, the three significant women in his life all died at a very young age. So he had this tremendous capacity for melancholy and depression, but it was humor that saved him. And even like his chief of staff and stuff, they would get so frustrated with him as president because, you know, they were in the darkest days of the Civil War and he would come into the office and he would begin the day by, you know, a humorous anecdote. And I think it was Stanton at one point that said, well, you just stop the stupid jokes. I mean, and, he, and Lincoln just said, if I didn't laugh, I would weep. And it was just like the incredible redemptive power of laughter when we're going through, you know, I mean, here is a man who suffered such anguish. And then and then he lost his, you know, his beloved son while he was in the White House. And you, know, you just look at a life that is just beset by so much tragedy and heartache and loss. And yet he learned the power of humor. And I think that's something that we sometimes really miss in our homeschool day, especially if we are so consumed with this notion of academic excellence. And sometimes I think, I think as mothers, we really have to look at our own hearts and we have to evaluate what is my purpose and what is my motive? Is it because I feel like I didn't get the education I deserved or I should have gotten or I feel inadequate in my education that, you know, I've got to make my children into academic superstars so that I can sort of live vicariously through them so I, I can somehow be successful through them? And I think we really have to put those, I mean, those are little demons that will really rob us of, you know, the beauty of what it means to be a mom and, and what it means to really nurture our children. And I think those are things that we need to be aware of, our potential, you know, just potential little foxes in our lives that can really spoil the fruit and to really look at those. So, so when I'm talking about memorization, I'm thinking this is an incredible faculty and power of the human mind. But let's use it for that which is really life-giving. And that was one of the things that Shakespeare, I mean, that um, Lincoln did. He had long, long passages of Shakespeare by heart. And even, you know, there's a beautiful story in one of the books we published called uh, Abraham Lincoln by James Dougherty. And there's a beautiful story of after the fall of Richmond and, and Lincoln is on one of the steamships going back to D.C., you know, traveling along the Potomac River there. And, you know, he's just had this incredible victory. The Civil War is over. And he's in, you know, he's in the steamboat and he's reading Shakespeare to his staff and his wife. And I, I just love the vision of that because he was talking about that passage in Shakespeare about, you know, the kings. I think he was reading either Macbeth or King Lear. I can't remember right now. But he clearly had some sort of foresight into you know, the nature of power and, you know, how kings can lose their thrones in a moment. And he had this premonition that he wasn't going to live long. And, and you feel that coming through as he's reciting this, you know, this play of Shakespeare's. And I just, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall at, at that moment and just imagine that scene with his, you know, his sort of lovely kind of Southern drawl you know, reading Shakespeare and this incredibly poetic person and um, and how beautifully that spoke to him at that moment in time. And, you know, we have that legacy of his, of, you know, just one of our incredible forefathers. And so it's so neat to have that connection and, and to think how he had that connection with Shakespeare and how that spoke to him. 
at an important moment in his life. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Those are the kind of stories we need to have to kind of spur us on when we start doubting ourselves, I think. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, literature, in the very best literature, has such eternal lessons. And I think that's the other thing why really forming our children's palate with the very best books, Mm -hmm. it immediately, at the most tender age, connects them to something much bigger than themselves. And that's why, you know, that you just, you have those golden years with your children where they're just like, they're just like sponges, just soaking everything up. And you want to really capture that because it's such a sweet time, you know, for mom and dad, reading to their children on their lap. It's such a cozy, intimate time. And at that time, you want to, you want to really utilize it to its maximum capacity and benefit. And I think when you're reading the very best books, you are. And I, and I think it's such an antidote for the narcissism of our age because, you know, when you look at so many young people now and the culture we have of, you know, just a little Hollywood stardom and a sports stardom, we live in a very narcissistic age. And the beauty of the best book is it, it connects us to something so much more transcendent than that and so much bigger than ourselves. And um, I have a great line in to Kill a Mockingbird, where Miss Maudie is talking to Scout, and she's talking about talents, and, you know, she says something like, you know, only a crazy person takes pride in their own talents, and yet, you know, we live in a culture that that's what we idolize. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's the completely unearned Oh, yeah, talent. like beauty or something um, that's completely... Physical beauty, yes. <laughs> right. Or, you know, the talent of sports. I mean, sports, yes, you have to nurture that talent, you have to refine it, you have to work it, but it's still a talent. It's still a God-given ability. Like, you know, you don't earn the body you're given. You're given this body, and this body may be skilled at something and may, you know, may be designed just right to throw the perfect pass, but that's not anything you earned. And yet, we live in a culture where people take so much credit for their own talents and their own giftings. And it's really tragic because those are the, you know, those are the people that are on pedestals in our culture. And that's why I think, you know, the best literature helps our children to not fall into that sort of narcissistic thing like, oh, I'm so good at this. Yeah, you know, right. something. It helps them see. I think one of the things that really helps my kids see, and me too, honestly, is we kind of get wrapped up in our own little world, especially as homeschoolers. I don't know, my my little inconveniences or frustrations at home will blow up in my mind to these big, massive problems. And then it's a story where you hear about the bravery of the boy in the matchlock gun or, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware that you go, oh, wait a second, I'm just this small piece of this big, big story. Yes, I think it really helps us see ourselves in perspective. And I think that's the beauty of it because we're all given to hubris. We're all given to pride. This is, you know, our Achilles heel in in our human nature that, you know, we will fall to that, you know, Mm -hmm. given half a second, Mm -hmm. we will fall to that. And I think it's so beautiful. And, you know, I think it's the other thing that I think is so important when we're reading to our children is they learn appropriate human emotions as they watch us respond to literature. And, you know, I think that is such a powerful lesson because when there's a moment in which it is so moving what has just happened that as we're reading, we're choked up and we can't continue the story and we have to stop because our voice is breaking and tears are coming to our eyes and our children learn, oh, there's something here. 
And I remember, and not every child reacts emotionally to literature. You know, children react in different ways. But one of our children seemed to always be pretty stalwart. And, you know, we'd all sort of be choking and choked up. And if I was reading, I'd have to pass the book to my husband because I'd just be choked up. And then, and then he would keep reading and he'd get choked up. And he'd have to try to pass it to one of the kids. And, and But our son didn't, this one son just didn't seem to, it didn't seem to affect him quite as much. And so you, know, you always wonder, what is that point at which there's, a little bit of a break in that, you know, whatever that armor is or whatever that uh, vulnerability is, how do you reach that vulnerable place? You know, because we all have different vulnerabilities, right? And so for this child, it happened to be the first time he really saw racism for what it was through the pages of a book. So he's 15 years old and he was reading Roll of Thunder, Hail My Cry, and Let the Circle Be Unbroken. And I think he was actually on the third one of that trilogy. And I was standing in the kitchen cooking dinner, and he came in, and he was bawling. And this was a child that just didn't bawl his eyes out. And his question was, oh, my gosh, Mom, how can people treat others this way? And, you know, that was that epiphany for him and that moment of catharsis, which is what the very best books do. And again, just like Atticus Finch says in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's that walking in another man's shoes and being able to empathize and feel their pain that, you know, that breaks us out of our sort of prisons. And William Kilpatrick calls it our prison houses of self-absorption. I mean, what better tool do we have in our tool chest? Yeah, right. To do that. Right. And it helps because as a parent, I feel like I do so much of that kind of directing the way I want my children to think or feel. But when you use a book to do that, instead you get to step out of the way completely and let the book do that work on on a child's heart, I think. You're so right. And that's so wise of you as a young mom, because I think it's easy for us to fall into kind of, you know, plying our children with questions. And rather than just sort of letting the book speak to them and letting what the characters are going through speak to them. And, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens over years of investment and over years of pouring into our children's lives in this way. And, you know, and it's such a joy now to watch my children be parents and watch how they're, you know, they're just taking so many of those lessons that they learned as children from the best books that they read and reapplying them in their children's lives. So we're seeing that second generation of those priceless lessons that they learned and the joy that they're getting out of being able to now share those things with their children. So right. it's really a multi-generational thing. I sort of speak to that scripture, you know, his truth endures to all generations. And wow, what a beautiful thing that we get to be part of that generational, passing on of that legacy and passing on of that truth and acquainting ourselves with, you know, the best books, but the books that have been seminal in American culture, you know, the Kill Mockingbirds and the Tom's Cabins and the books of Mark Twain, because those things spoke to particular issues of our culture. Now, they speak to universal themes, but through the venue of the issues that our particular culture has dealt with. And of course, the whole issue of racism has been really a defining part of American history, and it still continues to be. Yeah. When you look at what just happened in, you know, in South Carolina, you realize this is still a defining issue. We have to be constantly evaluating our 
worldview and our own particular, because we all have our own little cultural prejudices, you know, and sometimes we don't even realize they're there. But literature can help us see those things and can help us work through them. Well, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, and this has been such a wonderful conversation. But before I let you go, I am curious to know which book most shaped you as you were growing up. Well, like I said, I wasn't raised in a literary home, but I think, oh gosh, it's so hard. It really is so hard to point to one book, but I think one of the books that I read as a teen that I really felt opened my mind in a way. Well, you know what I like to think of is the words of C.S. Lewis, where he he calls it the baptism of the imagination. And I would say a wrinkle in time really baptized my imagination. You know, we're talking about the cultural issues of our day. And and again, C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, the baptism of imagination. But he also talks about this notion of don't read more than one contemporary book out of every three, more than one out of every three books. Because every society is subject to its own blindness. And if we read the old books, those will help us to see our own cultural blindness. And, you know, one book that I would really recommend, especially for this generation of home educators, is Charles Dickens' Hard Times. I have not read that, actually. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a book where he really tries to expose the mechanization of education. And because of the Industrial Revolution and the wonders of what industrialization brought to humankind, educators thought, well, this is what we need for education, too. So there became a real emphasis on making education devoid of any kind of emotion, because emotion wasn't scientific. And so when you read Plato, when you read Charlotte Mason, it's just like there is no true education without the emotional component. But now there are certain paradigms where you are, you're again divorcing it from emotion. So if there isn't something that resonates in the human heart with what we're reading and there isn't some sort of emotional response, then we probably need to kind of reevaluate. So Hard Times by Charles Dickens would be a great, you know, great read for parents just to really look at how education became economized and to, you know, to the demise of society. Okay, I'll put it on my list for this summer. Some of that. Yeah, good. This has been wonderful. So for all of our listeners, if you are really interested in teaching your children through literature, you really can't get any better than what Rhea and her team creates there at Beautiful Feet Books. And you can find them at bfbooks.com. They have literature packs for all different time periods in history. They also have a literature pack for history through science, which is really appealing to me. And one that I want to get my hands on soon is the history of classical music through literature. That sound, that looks fantastic, Rhea. Oh, thank you. Well, it's been delightful spending this time with you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. My name is Grace Pitts, and I live in Texas. My favorite book to hear read aloud is The Prairie Thief. It is about a girl named Louisa. My favorite part is when Louisa meets the brownie. Hi, my name is Jack. I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm five years old. My favorite book right now is The Magic Trance Book 45, 
A Crazy Day with Cobras by Mary Pope Osborne. My favorite part is when Jack and Annie get to the emerald rose out of the cobra's nest. It was really fun to read. Hi, my name is Kate. I'm three years old. I'm from Pennsylvania. My favorite book is Western Street. I can do it. My favorite part is when Elmo learns to swim. I love to read. Hi, my name is Jocelyn. I live, I'm five years old. I live in Nebraska. And I learned to manage a teacher for 100 years by Mitchell Field. I like it because it's written from the perspective of an antique doll. She goes all over the world and has lots of adventures. My favorite character is P.B. Preble, her first owner. And she gets lots more owners throughout the story. Hello, I'm James. And where I live is Alaska. And my favorite book is Wayneda and the Cornstalk. And how old I am is five years old. My favorite part is where Wayneda's mom throws the magic corn out the window. Awesome. Thank you, kids. I always love to hear from you. Okay, if you're a homeschooling parent, listen up because I made something for you that you don't want to miss and it's free. You know how when you're having a really hard day in your homeschool, I don't know, the toddler's melting down, kids are whining, the house is a mess, you have this all-consuming, completely overwhelming sense of, I am a complete and utter failure? Well, in those moments, when that happens to me, I always want to ask my favorite homeschooling mentors for their best advice, a single tip or a nugget of wisdom that would help me decide what's the most important thing to focus on in that moment, and maybe how I can simplify or what I can shuck from my overcrowded schedule. So I thought to myself, I'm sure that we all feel this way on our hard days. And so I just asked them. I asked some of my favorite homeschooling mentors, and the likelihood is that some of them are your favorites too. Andrew Kern, Julie Bogart, Susan Weisbauer, Lila Lawler, Andrew Pudwa, Cindy Rollins, Sonia Schaefer, Janice Campbell, and our guest today, Rhea Berg. I asked each one of them what a single golden tip for an overwhelmed homeschooling mom would be. And then I collected their answers into a handy little downloadable so you could print it out and keep it nearby on those days when you feel like throwing in the towel. I'm telling you. I got your back. (laughs) So if you want to grab that downloadable, it's totally, completely free. You can head to today's show notes to grab it. Go to readaloudrevival.com. Look for episode 31. There you'll find the download where you can grab it. And I want to know, after you get it, tell me which of their tips was the most helpful to you because I'm completely curious. You can leave a, a comment in the show notes or you can send me an email and let me know. I'd love to hear it. Again, that's readaloudrevival.com, episode number 31 to grab that download. 
Well, that's it for today. So I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Hey, for episode 32 of the podcast, my favorite sidekick, Courtney and I are going to be chatting up all the questions we've been getting in the inbox. If you've ever written into the Read Aloud Revival, you have probably met Courtney because she is the lovely lady on the other side of the screen. She and I are going to be answering a lot of questions we see in the private Facebook group, in the membership site, in our email inboxes, and we're going to be taking those on in the next episode. Super fun. So I'll see you next time. And hey, until then, go build your family culture around books. (music) 